0: I found that to study moral philosophy in its purest form, there's nothing like a children's playground. Hey, Johnny, you can't do that. It's against the rules. Oh, yeah, Johnny replies. Who says so? Who says so? Or, in the proper language of ethical analysis, Johnny would ask, What is the extrinsic moral sanction of such a stipulation? Who makes the rules? What authority do they possess? Why should I obey them? These are the sorts of questions that arise every day in the playground. And they're the kinds of questions addressed in the Bible. Deuteronomy, as we saw last week, is a book of law. But it is far more than that. Moses is not a lawyer. He is a preacher. Deuteronomy is not a statute book. It is a sermon Its message is directed toward moving the minds and wills of its listeners. Verse 1, Hear now, O Israel, the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live. This could be translated, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I am about to teach you to follow. The purpose of Moses' preaching is to foster obedience, not just to impart knowledge but he's seeking an obedience that is based on an understanding. And in verse 4, he does this by anticipating, in chapter 4 here that we're looking at, he does this by anticipating Johnny's question. He is giving a book of law, but before he does that, he wants to answer the question who says so? Who says so? And his answer, of course, God does. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the covenant. The God who entered into relationship with Israel as his people, who brought them out of Egypt, who promised to bless the posterity of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through them to bring blessing to all nations. This is the God who says so. And Moses is calling the people to remember the day when the Lord had commanded them to assemble the people before me, to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me, to fear me. As long as they live in the land, this was to be the basis of their obedience. Respect for the law begins with reverence for the lawgiver. Reverence for God. The fear of God, as it's often translated. Reverence. It can be defined as a deep respect for something or someone, often tinged with a sense of awe, resulting in a feeling of personal humility and submission. Reverence. I think reverence seems to be a foreign concept in our society where often there's no higher authority than the individual autonomous human will. Although occasionally, I do encounter a, a, a kind of odd, almost silly vestige of reverence. You see, as a pastor, I am a reverend. And I have people sometimes apologize to me for their profane and irreverent language as if I were the one they should be concerned about offending, you know. But reverence, and especially the fear of God, it is rare today. And I think partly because our common conception of God in mainstream American religious faith is so feeble. It's so anemic. In our post-Christian, individualistic, mass-consumer, capitalist society, it's no surprise that God seems to exist mainly to meet our needs. The God of our age isn't one who makes demands. No, He is one who is always available, on demand. God is something like a combination of divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call. He takes care of any problems that arise. He professionally helps His people to feel better about themselves. And He doesn't become too personally involved in the process. So in our secular society, there's little room for reverence. But I think, unfortunately, this this fear of God, this reverence toward God, is something you don't hear much about even in many evangelical circles. Many Christians address God with no more respect than they would Jeeves the butler. I, I think it's captured in this attitude of a young boy who was ready for bed, who interrupted a family gathering in the living room and said, I'm going up to say my prayers now. Anybody want anything? God is always at our beck and call. But the fear of the Lord... That reverent awe of God is one of the dominating themes of the Old Testament. It is the beginning of wisdom, according to Proverbs 1.7. It is the secret of righteousness, according to Proverbs 8.13. It is the whole duty of mankind, according to the preacher of Ecclesiastes. And this is not just an Old Testament theme. Paul sums up his description of the sinfulness of human beings, declaring there is no fear of God before their eyes. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul encourages us as believers to purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence, fear of God. Peter writes, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. And in the book of Revelation, we read, who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name, for you alone are holy. The fear of God. It's one of the constant themes of this book of Deuteronomy. Assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to fear me as long as they live in the land. Revere the Lord, Moses says. And so this morning we'll consider the theme in Moses' address under three headings, looking at the three direct statements Moses makes about the nature of the God who commands us. First, and the point that we'll spend most of our time on, revere the Lord who is always beyond our vision. He is, in verse 31, a consuming fire, a jealous God. Then revere the Lord who is always within our reach. He is, in verse 35, a merciful God. And then revere the Lord who alone is God. Beside Him there is no other. This is the God of the covenant. This is the God who says so. May we here this morning revere him as we hear his voice and consider his word. When setting before the people of uh, the God who had revealed himself to the Israelites on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, as Moses refers to it in this book, Moses takes his listeners back in verse 11 to that glorious scene some 40 years before. He says, You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. You heard a voice. You heard the sound of words, but you didn't see anything. There was no form. And clearly the absence of any visible presence of God was very significant because that idea is picked up again in verse 15, and it determines the way that God is to be worshiped. Chapter 4, verse 15. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky... And see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array. Do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance as you now are. You're not to be like all the other nations around you. You're not to worship the Lord your God through an idol, an image of any kind. For when he took you to be his own people on Mount Horeb, he spoke to you out of the fire, but you saw no form. Idolatry. I think idolatry reflects a deeply rooted human desire to capture God, to reduce him to our level to make Him manageable, to recreate God out of the material of our experience so that we can hold Him in our hands and manipulate Him. Now this brings some sense of security, no doubt, for we find this kind of a God less threatening. But the God of the Bible will not allow it. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He is outside of His creation. He is over it. He is beyond it. As the theologians say, He is transcendent. He is always beyond our vision. There's nothing that we can see, nothing we can create, nothing in all of creation, not even the sun, the moon, and the stars which He has created, none of this is able to represent, to capture who He is. It's like trying to visualize infinity. It can't be done. And the infinite God demands that we not try. The God of Israel, in contrast to all the other so-called gods of the ancient world, the God of Israel would not be worshipped in images. Now why is this so important? It is important because idolatry of any form destroys the fundamental distinction between the creator and the creature. Between God and nature. It ignores the fact that the Israelites saw no form. It's to exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles, as Paul says in Romans 1. It is to exchange the truth of God for a lie and to worship and serve created things rather than the Creator. For you see, images of God are a lie. They dishonor God. They necessarily domesticate the infinite and transcendent God. They bring him down to our level, either diminishing his majesty or obscuring his personal nature, or both. Images dishonor God, and images deceive us. So much so that the worship of the true God falsely, through images, inevitably leads to the worship of false gods. And so closely are these two linked that the, the single term idolatry covers both worshiping the right God wrongly and worshiping the wrong gods. They're both forms of idolatry. The Israelites had just left a land that were filled with uh, Idolatrous worship. They were about to enter into a land that was filled with idolatrous worship. The Canaanite pantheon was simply a deification of the natural world. Baal was the god of rain and storm. Yam was the god of the sea. Mot was the god of drought. And so it went. And to the Canaanites, nature was personified. It had a life of its own. Nature was a thou instead of being an it. The earth was their mother. And when they mixed with the Canaanites, the Israelites would be constantly tempted to bring the Lord God down off His lofty throne in heaven and make Him a part of creation. But remember, Moses says, when He spoke to you from the fire, you saw no form. You must be careful how you worship the Lord. He is always beyond our vision. He is the transcendent Lord of heaven and earth. He is always above the world that He has created. And so Moses says in verse 23, Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that He made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything. The Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. A jealous God. And if you doubt it, remember what he did at Baal Peor, Moses says in verses 3 and 4. You saw with your own eyes what he did there. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor. But all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. He's referring to an incident recorded back in Numbers chapter 25 when Israel was staying in Shittim. The men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them, and 24,000 Israelites died in a plague. This is serious stuff. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. But jealousy, you may say, I mean, isn't that a a bit unbecoming of a holy God? I mean, isn't jealousy a vice rather than a virtue? Isn't it a a lot like covetousness, a a resentful envy, a troubled suspicion, a fear of rivalry? Shouldn't God be above that sort of thing? Well, of course he is. But as uh, J.I. Packer points out, there is another kind of jealousy. There is a jealousy that is a a zeal to protect and to guard a love relationship and to avenge it when it is broken. Shouldn't a wife be jealous to maintain the love of her husband? Doesn't the exclusiveness of the marriage relationship demand that a husband be jealous when an adulterer threatens the integrity of his marriage? See, God's jealousy is like that. It is a consequence of His covenant love for His people. They belong to Him as a wife to her husband. He is zealous to protect this relationship. And idolatry comes in as a pernicious intruder, seducing His beloved bride, wooing His people away from their rightful love. And that's why idolatry makes Him angry, and He should be. Idolatry is a denial of who God is. And it's a denial of who God is to us. But this is not something we have to worry about. You may say to yourself, there's no statues in this church. We don't bow before the sun and the stars. Maybe that's true. But you see, the principles we've outlined here suggest two more subtle applications of this text. First, you see, we're guilty of idolatry whenever we bring the transcendent God down to our level, to the level of the creature. We can seek to understand God. We can say things about Him as they reflect the truth of Scripture, but we must never think that we can figure Him out. God will always remain beyond our vision. We cannot put Him in a nice, neat little box and think we can control Him and manipulate Him. We can't create Him in some image of ourselves. When people say, I like to think of God like this, or I like to think of God like that. And usually people like to think of God as one who is just as tolerant and indulgent and permissive as they are. That's a God of their own creation. It doesn't matter how you'd like to think of God. We must think of Him as He is, as He's revealed Himself to be, as He's revealed Himself to be a consuming fire, a jealous God. We must realize that even our highest theology can never contain Him. He will always be too great for that. We must revere Him in all His infinite glory and never think that we can bring Him down to our level. And second, you see, we're guilty of idolatry whenever we try to raise objects of creation or even creation itself up to the level of God. And We see this obviously in the nature worship of the New Age pantheists who say that God is all and all is God But I think more subtly it's true in the romantic naturalists who spell nature with a capital N, describe it as she, mother nature, nature personified, nature glorified and deified. What some people call worship is no more than an enjoyment and appreciation of nature of the kind Ralph Waldo Emerson so often spoke of, the feeling of exhilaration and wonder when walking in a moonlit meadow. In the shadow of a majestic mountain, appreciating nature, but apart from nature's God. Worshiping creation apart from the Creator. But what of other aspects of this world that we hold up for devotion and worship? Things that we look to for our fulfillment. Things that we think we cannot live without. The idols of our technology, the idols of our work the idols of our health. You see, nothing in this world must be allowed to divert our minds from the glory of the invisible God. And how often we worship what we see, the visible, the tangible aspects of our lives, but the Lord is always beyond our vision. He speaks, but we do not see any form. Revere this God. The majestic, transcendent God, the mysterious, wonderful God, the God who spoke out of the fire but who had no form. Revere the Lord who is beyond our vision. That's the first thing this passage impresses upon us. Now that's our first point, but that's only half the story. And and if you were to walk out right now, you would be tragically misinformed and probably misled thinking that God is about as accessible as the man in the moon. The Lord cannot be seen, that's true. But this doesn't mean that he's hard to find. Moses tells us otherwise in this chapter. If you you turn from the Lord, he says, and make for yourselves idols, then he will scatter you among the nations. But in verse 29, Moses says, If from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. If you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul, you will find him. The God who is beyond our vision is also within our reach. The God who is transcendent is also imminent. The God who is out there is also right here, near at hand. And this too is remarkable about the God of Israel. Verse 7, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near them? The way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to Him. We can find Him, but only... Because He allows us to. Verse 30, when you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey Him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your forefathers, which He confirmed to them by oath. The Lord your God is a merciful God. He is great, but He is also gracious. And we must see that both his jealous judgment and his gracious mercy flow from the same covenant love for his people. Yeah, I think of the story Jesus told of that gracious father, otherwise known as the parable of the prodigal son. The boy grabbed for his inheritance. He left home. He wasted it all in loose living. He reached the end of his rope, wallowing in a pig pen to which his sin had led him. But coming to himself, He returned home in humility to his father. And how did the father respond to his wayward son? With open arms, rejoicing that this son who is dead has come back to life. The gracious and merciful father, that's the God of the covenant too. The Lord who by his mercy is always within our reach. We may be repelled by His holiness, but we must also be attracted and drawn by His mercy. It is this God that we are to fear, to revere, to worship and obey. And so I ask, have you discovered God near to you? Have you sought Him with all your heart and soul? He's there. You will find him if you look for him. When you seek him, know that he will not abandon you or destroy you, for he has made a promise, a covenant promise through Jesus' his Son. I will never leave you or forsake you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Revere the Lord as beyond our vision. He's a consuming fire, a jealous God. Revere the Lord who is always within our reach. He's a merciful God. And third, Moses says, Revere the Lord who is alone, God. Besides him, there is no other. Look at verse 32. Ask now about the former days, long before your time. From the day God created human beings on the earth, ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to make for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? In the entire length of human history, from the day God created human beings on the earth, in the entire breadth of all creation, from one end of the heavens to the other, nothing like this has ever occurred, Moses proclaims, No other God has done what our God has done for you in creating a people for himself, in delivering you with his mighty hand and revealing his gracious law. What other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? Verse 8. And verse 35. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides Him, there is no other. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel. He's incomparable. He's unique. He alone is God. God. And for that very reason, the nation of Israel had a responsibility to make this God of the covenant known, known to all nations. Remember back Genesis 12, the promise to Abraham, the Lord would bless him so that through him all nations would be blessed. We see that in verse 6 of our passage here. Moses says to the people, observe these laws carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations. Who will hear about these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. You see, Israel's life as God's people, living in righteousness and justice, was to point to the glory of their God, who is the one true God. Besides Him, there is no other. So you see, this God who is invisible, in in a sense, makes Himself visible through the lives of His people. Their righteous lives are to be His image in the world. This wonderful miracle. The miracle and mighty power of the exodus from Egypt. The majesty and the revelation of the law on Mount Sinai. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Has anything like it ever been heard of? You see, Moses and his audience had to say no. Nothing so great as that has ever happened. They had to say no to that question. But you know, we don't. For since that time, something even greater has happened. For You see, we know that this same God has not only revealed Himself out of the fire, but He's now revealed Himself with a human face. This God has made a people for Himself not only by an outstretched arm of power in a battlefield, but by His outstretched arms of weakness and suffering on a cross. His awesome deeds now include setting aside His glory to wash His disciples' feet and setting aside His holiness to bear the burden of our sin. See, if the events that Moses knew of could inspire a humbled awe in the presence of an incomparable God, how much more should the events that we now know of the incarnation of this invisible God, this God who is beyond our vision, has become visible, As a baby in a manger, the image of God is now found in the person of Jesus Christ. And that God is within our reach, calling us to come, to follow Him to the cross, join Him at His throne. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. This God has now revealed His glory in His Son, Jesus Christ. And because He is the only God, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Besides Him, there is no other. And so we too have a responsibility to make Him known among the nations. Our lives as His people in the church are to make Him visible in the world. You see, this is the God of the covenant, the God of the new covenant. He is the one who rightly says so in our lives. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And I will be with you to the end of the age. How will you respond to this, God? I ask that again, because like Moses, I'm not teaching you about God so that you can pass an exam in systematic theology, but so that you could learn to worship Him and follow Him. Think about your worship. A. W. Toza said, worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Is your God big enough to inspire your worship? Do you draw near to Him with a certain sense of fascination and wonder? Or is your God locked up in a neat little box, a God you can understand and control and manipulate, a mere idol? We must come to worship, again, as Tozer said, to be filled with moral excitement, to be captivated and charmed and entranced, excited, not how big you're getting or how big the offering was or how many people came out to church, but entranced with who God is and struck with astonished wonder at the inconceivable elevation and magnitude and splendor of Almighty God. We must revere God. We must fear Him in our worship and so trust Him and obey Him in our lives. We turn in prayer as we prepare to come to the table of the